0: It's always a great feeling when you get up and a ton of people run out of the room. <laughs> I do love that we have so many kids in our services each week. It's, it's such a blessing. Hey, before we jump into the message, I want to share with you all an update from our Love and Action Benevolence Fund. Once a month... Uh, we invite you to give towards our Love and Action Benevolence Fund. You can do it any week just by designating your gift towards love and action. But we like to remind you once a month. But oftentimes, as a church, um, we don't hear how those are used because it's usually confidential or or, uh, delicate circumstances. But we did get permission from a family to share with you how uh, the funds impacted their lives and and just as a way for us as a church to see how God is using this. About a year ago, Love in Action received a request from a woman who was the sole provider for her family. She had three uh, minor children. She had been working for a national company who decided to close their local operations because of COVID-19, and so she got a very small severance and needed help with her mortgage, food utility bills until she could find a new job. Love and Action was able to help with a financial plan and emergency funds to keep the family afloat until she was able to get that new job. A local company hired her, and they're extremely pleased with her skills and what she's able to do for them. It it took over three months of support from Love and Action until she was able to get her first new paycheck. And because of your generous support to the Love and Action Fund, we were able to support and help this family get through a traumatic time. Uh, and so we want to praise God for the ability of our church to be able to support during these kinds of times. If you want to give towards Love and Action, you can do it online through text uh, in the offering boxes in the back of the sanctuary. You just designate that it's towards Love and Action as opposed to our general fund or one of the other uh, ministries. Would you pray with me as we give this time to God? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the people in this church uh, that have given so that families like this one we just heard about and so many others have been able to be blessed with help during uh, emergency times, during trying seasons, during moments in life when things are overwhelming. God, we ask that you would help us to use this time now for your glory as we worship you through our singing and through our listening, through our studying of the word, through our fellowshipping with one another and through our giving. Lord, we ask that you would use this for your glory in your kingdom. Amen. Uh, this summer we've been working our way through First and Second Kings in a series that we're calling Choose Wisely. Uh, We're turning to kings because in this ancient record of Israelite kings from the two nations, because for a big chunk of time it was split into two, Judah and Israel, uh, each king's life is summed up at some point with one of two phrases. Either they did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight or they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And, And ultimately... That's the important thing, isn't it, with with what we do with our lives. It's not about all of the other accomplishments, not about all of the different things, how much money we have, houses we have, cars, any of that. It's about, was our life pleasing in the Lord's eyes, or did we do evil in the sight of the Lord? And today, we're going to be looking at the Thanos of the biblical cinematic universe, the Darth Vader uh, if you will, the Khan Noonien Singh of uh, the Bible, uh, Khan. If you're not familiar with Khan, it, it comes from this incredible movie. At the end of the universe is the beginning of vengeance. Look, people, we know I like Star Trek, okay? And I think I do a pretty good job of not putting it in sermons very often. But I'm giving myself this one <laughs> because. There have been 13 Star Trek movies, because they're good. Uh, The second one, there's more on the way too, Uh, but here's the thing. The greatest villain, the greatest threat, the greatest evil to ever face the crew of the Enterprise and Captain Kirk happened uh, 40 years ago in the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The funny thing is this movie had the smallest budget of all the movies. Uh, They had made the first movie and thought, maybe we can squeeze a little bit more money out of this thing one more time. And they gave it a pittance of a budget. And uh, it delivered, man, directors, producers, writers have been chasing the success of this movie ever since in the Star Trek. Uh, Every movie they come out with, they try to tell us fans, this villain is as good as Khan. And we know it's not true. Uh, He has been such an incredible villain in this movie. It's literally become a part of our cultural zeitgeist. You've probably seen memes like this before, right, where we make fun of Kirk's screaming "Con!" It's been uh, replicated and parodied in all sorts of TV shows, shows, including Family Man, Big Bang Theory, and my favorite, uh, Seinfeld. I'm back in. All because of Rampicon? Yes! Well, it was the best of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's the scream heard round the world. Uh, we're looking at the reign of King Ahab in Israel this week. He's married to Jezebel. I think you already know with those two names, we're in for a ride, right? That even in our own cultural memory and history, the name Ahab is always a villain's name or a pirate, you know, whatever. And Jezebel, try calling a woman Jezebel and see how that goes. Yeah, don't actually. Um, because we know somehow, even for people that are not familiar with the Bible, we know those names just mean evil in some way. And here's why we, we see it. In First 1 Kings 1630, It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight even more than any of the kings before him. That's quite an introduction, right? Uh, It continues, and as though it were not enough to follow in the sinful example of Jeroboam, uh, a few weeks ago I spoke on Rehoboam. David's grandson, who had become king after Solomon died. And Rehoboam, when he became king, ignored the advice of his good advisors and listened to what he wanted to hear and made some really bad decisions that ultimately fractured the nation. Right, And he was left with only two of the 12 tribes of Israel. That became the kingdom of Judah. And the other 10 became the kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam. And the sin that Jeroboam did, is that when he became king, he looked at his people and thought, we've got a problem here. If they keep making the pilgrimage to the temple in Judah to worship, eventually Judah is just going to reabsorb us. That we will become part of that kingdom again. And he said, we need to follow some different gods so that our people no longer peel pulled to the temple. And so he had two golden calves made, and he put them before the people. And it says in 1 Kings 12.28 that he said, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He brought idol worship back into Israel. And so when, when 1 Kings 16.31 says, uh, and as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, it's saying that Ahab continued this idol worship. It also says he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. The Israelites were commanded not to marry foreigners, not because of a race or ethnic thing, but because of a belief in compatibility, right? That they had conflicting belief systems. It's the same reason that we're told in the New Testament not to yoke ourselves to an unbeliever. If you're not uh, familiar with what a yoke is, we have a picture. It's, it's a device put between two animals so that they can share the load and work together. And it, it's easy to see, if you look at this, if you were to pair unequal animals or if they were pulling in different directions, something's going to get hurt pretty quick, right? Uh, And that's why in 2 Corinthians 6.14, there's a warning about being yoked to an unbeliever. What makes it even more significant is that during Jesus' day, when Paul wrote this, yoke was also used as a metaphor for putting on a set of beliefs. Right? That rabbis were explained as having a yoke of beliefs, a yoke that they would put on their listeners... And so when you followed a rabbi like Jesus, the disciples would have very much thought of themselves as putting on Jesus' yoke of teachings and beliefs and practices. And so in 2 Corinthians 6.14-16, when it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, it's not talking about going out and plowing a field. It's talking about don't tie yourself to someone that you're going to have conflicting views and belief systems. Because that's going to create conflict. It's going to create hurt. It's going to create pain. He says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is another name for Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Paul says this because, as the New Testament tells us, Christ lives inside of us, right? It makes us the temple. We, we don't need a physical temple anymore because God dwells inside us. And so it makes sense that conflicting viewpoints should not be yoked together because they're going to pull in different directions, which is why it was such a problem that Ahab married Jezebel, a foreigner who would bring Baal worship into Israel. It says in verse 32, first Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Then he set up an Asherah pole. This was a whole other pagan belief uh, system, uh, another pagan deity. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. And it doesn't end there. A couple years ago I preached on a passage where Elijah confronted King Ahab over his sin. And it resulted in a face-off on top of Mount Carmel. Where Ahab showed up with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who face off against just Elijah in front of Israel, in front of the people. And at the end of the day, Elijah had prevailed. And they executed all 850 of these pagan uh, priests and prophets. It should have been the moment where Ahab put his evil ways behind. God literally dropped fire from heaven. It must have been incredible to see. Instead, he continued. He went to war against God's will. He ignored God's instructions. He stole from his own people, there was one story that got highlighted in particular where there was a man named Naboth who had a vineyard next to Ahab's property. And, and we look at this and, and we might not see what the big deal is about selling or giving away property, but, but Ahab really wanted it and Naboth kept saying no. And the reason was there was a little bit more of a cultural thing where property stays with the family. That gives you your status in the community. It gives you your standing. It's only under the most dire circumstances and emergency need that you should sell your property. And even then there were ways to get it back to the family. It was a huge cultural vow. So Naboth is just like, no, man, like this is my family land. And Ahab was furious and Jezebel heard about it. And so she goes, all right, I got a plan. So they framed the guy for a crime he didn't do, had him stoned to death by the town and then confiscated his land from the family anyways. Elijah confronted them over this sin and told them God had judged him and said that dogs would eat him and Jezebel for their crimes. There's a fascinating story parenthetical statement in chapter 21, written just after that judgment was delivered, it says in parentheses, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. It's like God is is looking at this going, what are you doing? I cleared this land out. Like I took care of it. I removed the pagan influences and you're just bringing them back in. I was laughing uh, the other day when when our family went on the student mission trips uh, in June. About 36 hours before the mission trips, my wife uh, decided to fill in for someone who was not able to go on the Alaska mission trip. So she had like 36 hours notice of she was going to be home, and now suddenly she's traveling on a mission trip. And so when we left, our house was a little bit challenged. <laughs> Is that a nice way to say it? We weren't having any visitors over that day. The uh, I wasn't saying anything because she agreed to a major Commitment with no notice, practically. Uh, but when we came home, our 21-year-old and our 19-year-old had been home during that week while the other four of us were on the mission trips. And I had almost texted uh, my, my son to say, hey, you guys should surprise your mom and clean that. And I was like, no, I'm not going to waste the time. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm going to send that text and then I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, and when we came home, the house was totally clean. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My 21-year-old Micah, he had cleaned the house. It was, it was all him. Uh, and, uh, but the fun part was in the hours after that, watching his frustration with the rest of us when we showed up. He's like, I worked hard to clean. it. You can't put that plate in the sink, man. Like, come on. Right? And, and Heather and I are both like, welcome to our lives, man. This is the last 21 years. And it's kind of like God on a much grander and more legitimate scale is doing the same thing of like, I cleaned this place out. And you're bringing it back in. Like, why would you do this? Over and over, Ahab had chances to follow God but chose evil instead. And it finally comes to a head in 1 Kings chapter 22. The prophet Micaiah had warned him he would die if he chose war again. But it didn't stop him, And it says in, in chapter 22, verse 29, So King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, As we go into battle, I will disguise myself so no one will recognize me but you wear your royal robes. Nice guy. It's a real, real classy move there. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Uh, The enemy king, the king of Aram, had told his chariot commanders, he had told his soldiers, we have one target today. King Ahab. He was like, I don't care about anybody else. Get me Ahab's head. And so they're all just... Chasing down, there's the one target they have in mind. And so they see the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and they're targeting him for a while until they realize, wait, no, that's a decoy. That's not Ahab. But in verse 34, after they've given up the, the chase of this other king, it says in verse 34, An Aramean soldier, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops and hit the king of Israel, Ahab, between the joints of his armor. Turn the horses and get me out of here. Ahab groaned to the driver of his chariot. I'm badly wounded. The battle raged all that day, and the king remained propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran down to the floor of his chariot, and as evening arrived, he died. Just as the sun was setting, the cry ran through his troops, We're done for. Run for your lives. So the king died, and his body was taken to Samaria, the capital, and buried there, then his chariot was washed beside the pool of Samaria, and dogs came and licked his blood at the place where prostitutes bathed, just as the Lord had promised. Eleven years later, Jezebel met her end, as well as a new conqueror by the name Jehu, sought to wipe out Ahab's family, including his son, who was now the king, in an effort to secure his own reign. And when Jehu arrived. To the city, Jezebel was up, apparently in a high enough window to cause what's about to happen. But when Jehu arrived, she began yelling out the window at him, sarcastically making fun of him and insulting him. And in 2 Kings 9.32, it says, Jehu looked up and saw her out the window and shouted, Who is on my side? Well, everybody up there is supposed to be on Jezebel's side. Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Throw her down, Jehu yelled. So they threw her out the window, and her blood splattered against the wall and on the horses, and Jehu trampled her body under his horse's hooves. You got to treat your people nice. Because, whatever. Uh, It goes on to describe that dogs ate her remains. Jehu just left them out there. And later, when Jehu's like, all right, go clean her up, there wasn't much left to clean up. Just a gross fulfillment of prophecy. In the end, Ahab reigned 22 years. And as we saw multiple times, he was described as being the most evil king in God's sight. Here's what I find fascinating. But I'm looking at this passage and going, what do we take away from this today? Like, don't be evil. Don't be the most evil guy, right? Like, what do we take away from this passage? And there's an interesting verse in 1 Kings 16, 25, just before the story of Ahab, Ahab's history. Omri, Ahab's father, did what was evil in the Lord's sight even more than any of the kings before him. One of the sad realities of First and Second Kings is that they do paint a downward spiral for the Israelites and the kings of the Israelites. Right? That by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. But the language is particularly strong when it comes to first Omri and then really strong with his son Ahab. Ahab was his father's son but even more so. And then, of course, there was the aside that we read in twenty one twenty five, where it said, No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. Ahab was a product of the influences in his life, wasn't he? None of us want to admit that our parents were right when they were worried about who we were hanging out with, right? We would tell them over and over, it's no big deal. They're not influenced. But deep down, we all know we become like the people we associate with. We rub off on each other. Uh, When I went to high school, I went to a boarding school for missionary kids in South America. My parents were missionaries for several years. And the boarding school I went to was incredibly strict, just so strict on so many things. It, it, it was I, so many things we couldn't do. If it was fun, we could not do it. And, and that included like music. There were all sorts of music rules. And, and this is the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, we were not allowed to listen to Michael W. Smith or Amy Grant. Like they've written most of the praise songs in our older worship books. But they were too rock and roll for our school. <laughs> Right? Like, she sang El Shaddai. Whatever. It was too rock and roll. We weren't allowed to listen to that. But some of my friends had a hidden stash of Walkmans and cassette tapes out off the property. Right? Because we weren't allowed to have Walkmans either. Because those are headphones. You, then they can't hear what we're listening to. If you don't know what a Walkman is. <laughs> in Guardians of the Galaxy 1, Star-Lord listens to music on a Walkman, okay? Uh, We had a secret stash that we would go listen to, and uh, that's where I was introduced to this band, uh, One Bad Pig. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's a Christian punk band. I mean, we were sinners, but we were still listening to Christian sinful music. (laughs) You can tell, it's got a cross on the pig's ear. I would say they sang, but really they screamed the hit songs, uh, Thrash Against Sin, Judas Kiss, and of course, my favorite, uh, Swine Flu," which talks about how we're all pigs in our sin until Jesus saves us, and and then this swine flies, this swine flew up into heaven. Get it? Uh, The chorus is just them screaming swine Flu" over and over. It's on Spotify. You can find this. Here's the thing, the first time I listened to this al- album, I was like, this is the most ridiculous, dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, it's just awful. It's, it's not good. They, like, they can't sing. They can't even scream very well. It's just crazy. It's loud. It's abrasive. And I tell you what, like, we listen to it all the time. And to this day, I still get nostalgic about it. On, I still have it saved in my Spotify. I still listen to it. Why? Because we rub off on each other, right? Like we can get desensitized to something, and it gradually it becomes part of who we are too. And then suddenly, thirty years later, you're bragging to a congregation about your one bad pig album. Uh, It's questionable. Here's the thing: there's funny examples of how we're influenced by others. There's also some really serious ones, aren't there? Right? That we can all point to examples in our own lives or the lives of people we're close to that aren't funny, where, where there were dangerous influences that were allowed to guide us or those we care about in directions that cause pain or destruction. Teams disrupted, marriages destroyed, friendships wrecked, addictions spiraled out of control, right, because of the influences that were surrounding us that we're guiding, that we're rationalizing, that we're justifying horrible decisions. Scripture has a lot to say about the influences we allow in our lives. In Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, it says, Don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people, or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The godly give good advice to their friends, the wicked, Lead them astray. Proverbs 13.20 says, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get into trouble. See, God is deeply, deeply concerned about the influences in our lives. There's so many verses like these throughout the Old and New Testament. God is deeply concerned. But here's the thing, and just like our parents worrying about what friends we have because of the impact they can have on us, it's not out of a desire on God's part to micromanage or control us, right? That God is the perfect, healthiest example of someone wanting the best for us in our associations and who influences us and who impacts us. Right, that God wants the best for each of us. We're his children he deeply loves and desires to see flourish for his glory. Ahab is the ultimate example of influences gone wrong. He followed the example of his father and the influence of his wife. And to be clear, he's 100% responsible for his sin. Right, That, that he didn't get to stand before God and then like, man, if I had had a different dad... If I had married somebody else, we'd be having a different conversation right now. If you could just, I could redirect you to them right now. No, he's 100% responsible for what he did, right? He owns his decisions, but I wonder what his reign would have been like if the influences had been different. And I think there's two things that we can learn from his life, his choices for our lives today, and the first is this, that we need to choose our friends wisely. How much thought do we give to the influence of our friends in our lives? Like how often do we actually stop and consider who are these people that I'm allowing so much access in my life? So much impact, so much influence. And I'm not saying, like the point of this sermon is not to say that we are not supposed to be friends with people who are not Christians, right? That, that we are called to reach this world. We are called to spread God's message to the world around us. The only way we do that is by knowing people who are not believers. But part of the question we should be asking ourselves is in our circle of core friends, those people that have deep impact on us, what, who are they that we are choosing to have that role? You know, I read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 uh, earlier, and, and oftentimes we reference that passage about being uh, yoked together in the context of marriage. That's oftentimes how we talk about it. But when Paul wrote this, that wasn't what he was talking about in that moment. That, that when he was writing these words... He was giving general instruction for our significant relationships and friendships in general. He's saying, hey, in your life, the people that you allow to have influence on you don't be yoked together with unbelievers for we are the temple of the living God. He's going, hey, make sure that you're connecting yourselves to people that are pulling in the same direction, that are going to share the load instead of hurting you by pulling in a different direction. Remember how yoke is a metaphor for a set of beliefs or following a set of teachings. And wisdom calls us to share that yoke with people pulling in the same direction. I love that Paul puts this in the context of us being the temple of the living God. There's a sacredness, a beauty, a holiness to having God dwell in us. And do our lives reflect that? Do we have people in our lives that point us to that understanding. And I would challenge you to take some time today, to take some time this week to consider your key friendships and to ask yourself some questions. Uh, Do these friends, do they love God? Do they share my desire for the future? Do they challenge me to be more like Christ? Does their advice line up with scripture more often than not. I said more often than not because none of us are perfect, right? Like we're going to screw it up sometimes. That's why it's probably good to have multiple friends that are pulling in the same direction that you can be drawing on for advice to see if, if they most of the time more often than not line up with scripture. If the answer to these questions is no, then it's probably time to reconsider who we're allowing to influence in our lives. Right, that that again, we're not to cut ourselves off from the world. But if you can't say yes to these questions about any of your core friendships, that's a red flag. Right, that's a red flag that you may be influenced in ways you don't even realize. So often, when we find ourselves messing up or in a position, we're like, what's the thought we often have? How did I get here? right? That we, we don't very often just make the decision that I'm going to go way off the deep end and make a colossal mistake out of nowhere. It's usually a gradual process. We're gr- usually influenced gradually that way. We justify, we rationalize. And so if we're looking at our friends around us and going, man, none of these answers are where I need them to be, we need to reevaluate some of our friendships. If If you're looking at this going, man, I need some friends like that, I think one of the best places you can do that is in our our small groups ministry that we have at this church. Right? That there's something about Sunday morning. I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are so important when the body gathers together to worship. But at the same time, it's a little bit easier to come in here on a Sunday morning and hide what's going on. To put on the right face, to look the right part, to say the right words, and get out without anybody knowing what's going on under the surface. But when you're sitting in a circle with six or eight or ten other people that you're getting to know and you're building trust, and you're encouraging each other and supporting each other, man, that's the circle where you can start to really make these key friendships And have people that really do begin to share your desire and goals for the direction you're going in. That they can challenge you to be more like Christ. That their advice is probably going to be lining up with scripture more often than not. And if if you're not part of a small group, man, now's the perfect time to ask. Put on your connection card. Give us a call. Let us know you want to know more about them. A lot of our groups kick off in September. So talk about the perfect time to start asking about getting plugged in to one Back to the sermon. We need to choose friends wisely, but we also need, the second thing we can learn from Ahab, is that we need to choose to be a godly friend. Right? That scripture is not just all about what can I get, right? It's not just about how are you going to be friends for me. It's that I'm also called to be that for you. That, that it's not just about me finding godly influences, but that I am called to be a godly influence. In Romans 12, 2, it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We need to choose to let God transform us into a new person, the person that he's called us to be. And I don't know about you, but like That is what I want to be known for, right? Like, isn't it more appealing to have people know you as that wise person, the person that loves God, that puts God first, that that we look at those people and we admire and we respect and go, man, that's where I want to be. That that it's so easy in the day-to-day to ignore that, but ultimately that's what we're called and wired to be. And, and when Ahab faced God, I have to believe that he faced regrets about the decisions he made in his life, the influences he allowed in his life, and the influence that he was to God's people. Every single one of us wields influence, right? With our family, with our friends, and our neighborhood, and our school, and our sports teams, and our job, wherever it is. You know, even those of you that are younger, you wield influence with people younger than you, with your friends, with your classmates. And how often do we stop to think, how am I using the influence God is giving me? Right? Are we, are we just living our lives? Or are we taking time to be intentional about, man, wherever it is I am, God has put me there for a reason. And God has given me influence on those around me. And what is that influence looking like? I think there's a few questions we can reflect on, on what it means for us to choose to be a godly friend. The first question is this, do I love God? And kind of a follow-up to that, tied with it, is can others tell? Right, it, it, if I'm really loving God and living for him and my influence is radiating out, others should be able to tell that I have a love for God. Do I challenge others to be more like Christ. These are the same questions that I was asking before about the friends that we have in our lives, but now directed inwardly. Does my advice line up with scripture more often than not? And once again, if, if you're finding you're answering no to more of these than what you would like to, then that shows what your next step needs to be right, to to address this, to pursue God in a more intentional way. And again, I think our small groups are one of the best places for that, right, because of the accountability, because of the pursuing God together, because of the getting into the word together and praying together and sharing each other's lives together. That we're able to have others help us grow in our love of God. That we're able to challenge others to be more like Christ and we're able to have them challenge us to be more Like Christ, guys, we we have such an incredible gift, right? The the influence that God gives us and the influence that we receive through others around us, and the lesson of Ahab is: Are we being intentional with that? Are we being wise with the influences we're allowing in our lives and the influence that we're wielding? Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much. For this story, is as, as ugly as it gets, that we can learn from it, God. And we ask that we would not be an Ahab, that we would not be a Jezebel, but that you would, that you would open our eyes to the influences in our lives, that we would be wise with the friends that we allow to, to impact us, and that you would also use us as influences for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.